Welcome to the Dev Ready Podcast, where we're helping non-techs build better tech. Today, we're joined by Chris Tran. Chris Tran is, um, he's a tech and financier, as we call it. He's, he assists founders in raising capital and considering how they might raise capital, specifically in the Southeast East Asian markets. Chris, thank you for joining us. And just a bit of a, a two-throw, we met um, in a and a bit of an offsite with a startup we're working with out in Thailand. So um, back in October, I think it was. So yeah, Chris, thanks for joining us and love to get your thoughts on the market and how you might assist founders in the journey of going into Southeast Asia. Chris. Firstly, uh, thank you very much, Anthony and Andrew, on uh, having me um, at your show. And uh, I'm delighted to uh, be a part of the work that you're doing in supporting the founders and this wonderful journey because it is really amazing um, the work that we have in founders that want to actually build something to solve a problem for today to build a better tomorrow. So thank you for the work that you are doing at DevReady and uh, a privilege to be a part of it today. So in terms of the work that we do, we are based in Singapore, but we also have an office in India and we cover all the countries in Southeast Asia. So we work with founders across Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, etc., And it comes up a lot in our work in terms of, you know, where are the markets and the important question of how do we navigate the markets? <laughs> so in terms of, and it's nothing new, where are we in the markets? Well, we are up for a significant and multi-decade coming change. And there's just no two ways about it. Um, we are at the end of a unprecedented set of circumstances which will never be repeated in history again. And I, I, I don't want to put too fine of a nuance on it. Uh, yeah. So, And it's across a lot of things which affect a founder and a founder's ability to raise, a founder's ability to actually execute strategy, which markets are available to him or her, and ultimately the exit. So uh, let's peel that back. What does that all mean? Well... Number, quite a bit in that, yes. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, I mean, number one, there are, you know, uh, what I don't see as enough reported um, facts, right, around what's happening in the world today. And, you know, number one is that India is more populous than China now, right? Few people realize that. Um, China, depending on any way you measure it, is the world's most dominant economy now. And things that people don't realize when, you know, we go into Europe or, for example, when we go into Australia, um, is that the largest trading partner of China is not the USA. It's actually Southeast Asia. And so there are these shifts that are happening, which I think should be thought about when the founder thinks about fundraising and growing and ultimately exit, right? So that's one. I, I talk about the geographical sh shift. The second is, no doubt, we're in the fourth, arguably even fifth, industrial revolution. So we had this age of where, okay, great, it was Web 1.0, the internet, then it was Web 2.0, which was, you know, one to many, great, Web 3.0, which was crypto, it's fine. We're into a world where we may longer, no longer see unified platforms that we've been able to um, and standards that we've been able to enjoy. What do I mean by that? Um, you know, we've had a long time where it was fine and it was overall good for the world where, okay, let's all go on Facebook, let's all connect, LinkedIn, whatever. You wouldn't ask a second question about it, right? But now when we have 5G coming into the fore, what is the operating system for mobile? And it's not necessarily going to be US-led only. 
And of course, what's really topic on mind is bringing this to everyone's attention is of course, TikTok. So get ready for more discussions around what platforms are relevant. We will no longer have just single platforms um, being the domain and all you need to think about, right? And then third, I'd talk about the money flows. Now, uh, it is well documented that it, when you talk about financial cities, that's been shaping up quite um, differently. Uh, what we've seen for the last two decades is uh, there has been a move out of uh, Switzerland, effectively, and Geneva, the um, privacy banking laws. And, you know, just over the last few weeks, we've seen UBS swallow Credit Suisse. Uh -huh. Hong Kong is um, having some of its challenges of its own. Uh, only this year, Singapore was ranked as, and it depends on what study you use, but Singapore was ranked as the third global capital after only New York and London. And it's not just Chinese money in Singapore, but for example, in Singapore, we're getting a lot of Indian money coming through, uh, a lot of family offices setting up. So when a founder is operating his or her business, there are a lot of things happening around the world that, that should affect their strategy and decision-making. Happy to go into any other areas, but I'd start off with those comments. Let's learn just a little bit on the um, why money's coming into Singapore. What do you see about that part of the world? Clearly, it's been a financial capital, um, but it is becoming a bit of a tech hub and where people are bringing their money to invest. Why do you see that? Is it more the, the protection, the tax? What does it look like for people coming in there? Yeah, sure. I mean, the biggest, biggest, biggest thing about it is... Uh, the absolute, you know, yeah. and there is issues and Singapore is by yeah. no means perfect, but um, the absolute drive by the government and consistent <laughs> drive by the government to make it a tech hub. Like, yeah. um, you know, this is a government that gave four VCs a decade ago, um, you know, something like a ridiculous five for one um, matching grant. I mean, can you imagine the Australian government yeah, well, going up to a VC yeah. and saying, mm -hmm. hey, for every dollar you invest, I'm going to give you $6 to invest. And if you lose it, right. that's fine because I want you to build right. Silicon Valley in Sydney or Melbourne. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, unfortunately, yeah. never well, had that in Australia, right? That's no. Um, correct. That's, and it probably won't happen anywhere else either. It's like an amazing scheme. <laughs> Correct. So, you know, if we think about the true technology capitals, software, right? I mean, yeah. I'm not talking about uh -huh. hardware. I mean, Japan was, you know, the last century, the hardware winner, right? But if we think about the technology capitals um, around China, the US and Israel, all of them had a very strong geopolitical reason to invest in technology. But Singapore has yeah. actually decided to do technology to ensure that it's relevant in the 21st yeah. century. Um, and Is I commend it. it. So, uh, the ability yeah. to put the money where the mouth is, the ability to have things like Singapore FinTech Festival, which is the world's is largest FinTech festival, and they dump millions into that. Um, they have a university program. There is a program, and I give credit to the Singapore University, where students are given money and the course curriculum is invest our money into a, a startup, go onto the board and manage it. And, and I mean, oh, that's wow. just... Right. That's insane. Well, it's not yeah. just a paper shares on the computer somewhere. It's actually yes. investing for real. So, so you know, Australia's got a lot of advantages, but this I don't, uh, I've been saying this for decades. I don't think Australia fully utilizes it. Australia has an amazing uh, ecosystem where it is a good hunting ground for typically Western acquirers, the US, North America, and Europe, and also has a wonderful stock exchange, which operates very well. And more or less, even though it's not perfect, it's got an investor it? base that can appreciate software 
and good quality technology companies, right? So I want to give a balanced view. It's yeah. not just like Singapore's got everything. Yeah, no, got it. So I think it's just give a bit of context of a different market. I think as most of our listeners are sitting here in Oz, um, they're probably not aware of what's going on around them. And it's so close to home, right? Singapore, Southeast Asia, it's really close. Uh, how do we start to engage in those markets? Everyone thinks, build something here, let's go straight to the US, but maybe that's not the first step. So I think there's a lot of context to this. Um, on the platform front, you mentioned a little bit there about the change in the landscape around platforms, the Facebooks, the et cetera, as we just had an announcement from the Australian government that uh, they're banning TikTok on all devices, you know, in any government-owned government device, device. Um, not across the whole of Australia, but government-owned device. That's a pretty big stance. Um, what do you see from that perspective of the battle? It's like a cold war going on around technology. What do you see in that space? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we see that the cold war is going to be there for the operating mm. systems, what I call the operating systems. I mean, when we got this whole change of the world, which happened when we had the iPhone, the operating system effectively was still uh, US led, right? And then yeah, there'd definitely. be a question of, you know, how long is it going to take before there might be a very different operating system on the phones that we have, right? Um, I don't know when, but that, oh, yeah. that, that will happen at some point in time. And so it's around the operating systems on our phone, and then it's on things that we don't see. I mean, that's what we see kind of B2C, right? But the things that I see B2B is, you know, uh, as the languages and protocols develop around IoT, right? And, and the communication between, like, how does all of that look, right? And we just have no idea, or I have no idea. Yes. Oh. Yeah, it's in infancy stages, really, that sort of stuff. It's it's there, but it's not widespread enough. It's not commoditized enough to get to everyone, like you're probably th talking about. Correct. And I think one of the things that we've got to realize is the inconsistency of policy stance, right? That's very difficult for a founder to deal with. I mean, we do not know who will be elected in the US. Uh, even we have the French president saying, well, you're back for now, but I don't know who's going to be the next person, right? And that's a challenge. I'm not attacking democracy. Yeah. Democracy is wonderful. I, I mean, I've been lucky enough to grow up in a democracy, but you're having these questions around consistency or policy, right, in democracies right now, which is, again, you know, tricky. Um, if you had a purely kind of economic view, what I'd say is that is you'd look at these models that were um, interoperable between platforms because I can see a lot of people not wanting to pick sides. I mean, a lot of people just want to, you know, build businesses, fix a problem, make life better. Um, that's certainly one thing that I, I would consider. We see a lot of um, software players um, actually uh, do really well in terms of kind of just making life easier in a more complex environment, right? So, um, you know, in the good old days, you'd have clever, intelligent software programs around CRM and email. Now, the ones that we're seeing that are succeeding are ones that, for example, integrate WhatsApp, WeChat, Line, Naver. Um, we're seeing it across HR, for example. So, you know, this whole movement uh, and just, you know, some thoughts, right? Um, yeah. You know, we saw outsourcing. Now we're seeing insourcing. Now there's such a thing as friend sourcing, right? So um, disparate workforces. Um, and, you know, these are my client dis disclaimer, but... Um, you know, good companies like Multiplier, right? So that's a company that allows you to have employment of record and have a workforce across 40 countries. I mean, these are the interesting um, uh, ideas that we're seeing come out and get real traction. Yeah, you take, it makes the complex simpler, correct? Yeah, because, and they, that world's really opened up for everyone when you're trying to manage multiple works, workforce across different 
locations, you've got legalities behind that, so they can solve a quick problem. Understand? Did that well, really get a boost from COVID? I would imagine. Would that have taken a lot longer to get brought forward? Do you think? Chris? Absolutely, undoubtedly. Yeah, it's just a huge accelerator. Yeah, it's that's one of those businesses that. Um, what is what? Did they spin out during COVID or pre-COVID? Would you know? Uh, I think it was pre-COVID, but they pre-COVID. just got, you know, an increase. You got the ex- exponential growth yeah. as a result of COVID. just helped them along a little yeah. bit. I mean, one of the areas I can tell you that, that. you know, um, we have so much potential, for example, yeah. is, you know, can Australian education be more global, right? And quite frankly, the definition of global has been, oh, it's global, you come to us. <laughs> and that's still, look, yeah, there's and- a bit of an announcement of, when was it last week? I think it was that the the government's expanding out their immigration policy. They want six hundred fifty thousand people to come into the country over the next two years in Oz, and effectively most of those are going to be students, or at least half of them. They're still doing the same model, but the world's changed. So I would agree that think, thinking is that's to change even at a government policy perspective. How do they engage that offshore without bringing them in? But it's all about bringing more people in. Increasing, like we're low, um, we're at really low unemployment rates, so they need to really drive that up. So it's not the cost of workforce is a problem, but it's yeah, it's a very interesting dynamic when the world's changing, but government still runs the same in my eyes. With those platforms, you mentioned that we're sort of like the fourth or fifth revolution at the moment. Is the fourth one those bringing those like connected services together and then moving towards um, AI with the growth that everyone's seen over the last few months? Is that sort of the direction you see everything moving? Uh, I see another direction as well. Um, so the answer to that is yes. And I see another direction where, you know, this kind of idea of democratization and decentralization go further. So if we look at Bitcoin, and I know it's a dirty word, but the reality is, is that it yes. had traction and, 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 and potentially still has traction because it solved the need in the market, right? It still does have traction. People, people yeah. the, you know, you can't deny that people lose have lost trust in central banks. People want an alternative, right? Uh And play is one alternative. Otherwise, it wouldn't have wrapped. Um, Where we see is, to your point around platforms, yes, there are platforms which will do well, but what I would call enabling platforms or enabling technologies that allow people to create their own platform, right? Or to create the, hey, I want to do this and get to let, you know, a coalition of people to do this and I want it to be decentralized and I'm going to use Web 3.0 to do it. And I'm going to incentivize actors on my own mini ecosystem. So, you know, we think that, and okay. it's kind of like, what happens if you take, you know, the creative economy further, right? And what happens if you have, so, so that's what, you know, that's what we see, the more enablement of the individual and the more around, uh, are there technologies that help individuals or people, you know, kind of create their own communities? So be more towards, we see looking at the crypto side, those decentralized autonomous organizations running. There's more community group driven deciding the rules and how things operate and bringing people together. Yeah, because the the, the wonderful thing about, you know, um, developing a company in Australia is that, again, it is viewed um, as, you know, if it comes to Australia, it's going to work. It's great. Um, And there is an ability to export that technology, right? Um, And and multiple ways. Um, I might just go sideways and touch upon something just in case it doesn't get lost, but you know, Indonesia, just to be clear, is the world's fourth largest country, right? That's right on our doorstep. I mean, it's just, just kind of like a yep. reminder, right? Um, and yep. then, you know, people, sometimes people have a misunderstanding of, and, 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 you know, by 
but by working together and by really building bridges is the only way that we're going to move forward as humanity. People do not appreciate that Indonesia is a Muslim country and a peaceful democracy, right? So, so I just wanted to make that point. And then okay. Vietnam is a hundred million people that Vietnam is not sneakers and t-shirts. It is mobile phones. It is electric cars. Uh, just to be really clear. So that is going to be the next manufacturing story, right? And so the U.S. is an amazing country, um, arguably history's most successful civilization. Quite rightly, founders should look at the U.S. Absolutely, there is good high spend there. But equally, you know, are there opportunities beyond China called Vietnam, which is the next manufacturing hub? Are there other consumer markets uh, such as Indonesia, which, by the way, has roughly a GDP per capita twice of that of India, right? Um, that should be part oh, of well, the consideration okay. mindset, right? It was a little, little bit to consider there because I think in Oz, um, every founder is set up a product in Oz and then go straight to the US. <laughs> that's the that's the reality of what everyone talks about, how do we get to the US market? But um, it is a lot closer to deal with the world of Southeast Asia, Indonesia, and really jumping into that. Well, but it's a very different market though. How do you, like if you look at Oz compared to Southeast Asia, there's a big difference, I believe, in the way we operate, the culture. How do you break that down a little bit from a founder's perspective? Yeah, Australia's like Western, we so you just yes. lump America, is, England, New Zealand, Australia, like all very similar. Correct. You wouldn't think much difference yeah. between so them. So as a founder, how do I think about tapping into a different market, different culture, and taking a product from Oz into Southeast Asia? What's some of the considerations that... Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, it depends on the type of business that you're running. So the reality is if you're running a sort of B2C business where you're relying on high spend, maybe Southeast Asia is not it. It will be the next yeah. consumer story, but the spend is in the US. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> but for example, what if you're building some sort of manufacturing IoT technology and you're making no way with the Americans, right? I mean, they're sovereign. I mean, what if, for example, you were able to get some support from Singapore, go into... Uh, Vietnam, get into a factory that, uh, I'll tell you, Samsung, LG, right, are running. Uh, what if you were uh, some sort of technology around uh, quality control and procurement? And I'll tell you, we have this new conflict around chips, right? Um, chip manufacturing, Singapore, uh, Malaysia. So courses for courses, but what I'd say is be open, ask what type of business, you know, you have, and are there other opportunities which can either, you know, um, be an alternative to the U.S. or actually springboard you, right, to the U.S. And to be clear, um, I would like to name a couple of U.S. VCs, which are in Singapore, by the way, which may or may not be that active in Australia, as far as I know. So MassMutual is a global top 30 company, and its first non-U.S. investment um, office is in Singapore. In right? Sing yeah, not in Sydney, it. not in London. Okay, you know, there's a reason for that, clearly. Right? Yes. Um, Sequoia, which is fabulous, and the 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 one that looks after Asia Pac, right, is effectively is a Singapore and India office. It's not being run out of Sydney, right? Yeah. Uh, so 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 you know, I think as a stepping stone, and not just going straight to the US. Because the other problem too is you can go straight to the US, but if you go straight to the US with some of these players, they might just say, hey, actually talk to Singapore, right? So you might as well just, you know, cover all your grounds. So from a, um, a founder looking to 
crack into Singapore? What's some considerations? Do they work with a group like yourself? Do they just fly over there, get an understanding? You mentioned get support from Singapore. What does that mean, support from Singapore or Singaporean government? Are there any schemes to bring in people with ideas or startups as well? Yeah, there's a whole variety of schemes, but um, it's kind of like tail wag the dog, right? Um, what I would do is think about my business, spend some time in Singapore, think about does it make sense? I mean, it won't make sense to everybody, right? Um, and then I'd really think about, well, okay, if it does make sense, um, of course, Australia has had, and I think still has, excellent schemes. I think there's still an export development marketing grant, right? That's available. There is, yeah, there um, definitely. And, and a few other things. And like, let's be realistic. Yeah, okay, it's an eight-hour flight, but you know, it's all like that uncomfortable to get to Singapore, <laughs> right? I yeah. mean, you know, and you can escape to Bali and Phuket like all the Aussies do, which is wonderful. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, yeah, people should just come up. They should um, just investigate. Um, they should talk to some of the VCs. They should get some advice. Um, I Is think it, just, you know, it just does not hurt to have that broader view, right? Yeah, definitely. Hey, are you seeing sort of a trend in the, the vertical that the startups are getting funded through in Singapore? Or is it just across the board a variety? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I, and I can even give you a background and I, and I think it, 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 it's definitely different from Australia. I mean, what we saw, I guess in the 2010s, the first half of the 2010s was a lot of e-commerce, a lot of B2C, um, and then to facilitate e-commerce broadly, we saw a lot of logistics, um, uh, you know, Uberization of trucks, ships, planes, um, that's still going on. Um, then a lot of fintech, uh, digital banking, et cetera, move into the fray. Uh, what we're seeing now, and it's a byproduct of industrialization of these countries, is we're seeing local brands. Um, Shine is a very successful Chinese brand. We're seeing successful localized Indonesian brands, Vietnamese brands. Uh, so we're seeing an evolution. We're seeing different type of businesses getting funded. Um, we're seeing um, cultural um, uh, Muslim, uh, Islamic banking, um, being financed, which is great. Um, we're seeing micro insurance, so insurance for a lower social economic tier. Um, one of the sad things I think about, um, in Australia and the U S is inequality is growing. So don't be surprised if these models funnily enough have more global application because we are seeing more bottom of the pyramid and, you know, things are just getting harder for a lot more people. Uh, and also what we're seeing, which is, uh, a, um, catalyzed by the Ukraine war is a lot of aquaculture, agriculture tech. So, um, how do you more efficiently get that product from the farm? Um, how do you use IOT, um, prawn fishing, um, normal fishing, um, that's happening in Indonesia as we speak. There are companies worth hundreds of millions. And, uh, at the end of the day, I, I think it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's all goodness. We will need these solutions to make sure that we have sustainable and clean sources of food for everybody. I think, um, yeah, if the whole fishing market, I remember when I was first time in Thailand, they were just fishing off the back of a boat. So it's probably evolving over the time. It's just fascinating watching them with their nets and just crawling out and just <laughs> the, 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 probably the dad or the, the, the family, the little fishing, fishing boat and brings it back into the, uh, the island and probably sells it off at the markets and yeah that will evolve over time but i think it's still relevant today um in terms of the whole business banking sort of blow up the fintech component of what's been going on fintech was large and it really got smacked and the world of the buy now pay later worlds got hit pretty heavily what's 
the market look like in that space? Obviously, one of the things I see looking from the outside in is VCs generally, they might have a, a niche market they work in, and then they they work to basically invest in, grow the, the opportunity, and look for bigger VCs to come in and actually invest. Um, when the market dries up a little bit, you see valuations cut in half, cut in quarters, cut in to one-tenth, etc., what does that market look like? Because Singapore was a big fintechy hub, but looking at more technology as a, as a whole, given that it's got its banking background, what does it look like now in terms of Singapore? Is it just all tech or is it still that fintech flavor? Yeah, sure. Um, there's still a, a very strong fintech element and absolutely yeah. the whole buy now, pay later, um, yep. you know, really, really mm. had some issues, of course, which Singapore wasn't immune. And then the other part of it, of course, as well, is the whole uh, Web 3.0 crypto element, right? Um, and uh, definitely Singapore has lost um, uh, some of the players to, interestingly enough, Dubai, right? Um, okay. but, but, but there are a lot of things in Singapore um, that are fintech related and related is across, um, you know, one, one clear example I can give you is, and everyone's got a different name, but one I call embedded vertical finance. So what I mean by that, you might be running, for example, you know, a shipping company and then you, or a supply chain business, and then you actually, you know, can provide financing for the working capital for that inventory and transit, or you can provide insurance as well, right? Because you understand it. Um, we see um, used car platforms, for example, Caro and Carsum, which are local here, um, have their own financing offering and, you know, everything embedded within the vertical. So that's not going away anytime soon. Um, you, you know, the, the old school of where like a bank had to advertise on television to reach the customer. I mean, here it is, right? I mean, you are just going to these places when you're looking at your automobile uh, usages and the embedded finance is there. Um, so that's not going away anytime soon. Um, we see a proactive and pro, um, uh, uh, pro-accommodative government stance, not just in Singapore, but across the region. I mean, you're talking about people having banking services for the first time ever, and the government is very happy for that and wants to know. Uh, in fact, one of the small um, benefits that you know people don't talk about is, for example, COVID in Indonesia. One of the reasons why it was a lot better than it could have been um, and, and actually in Indi India as well, is because uh, India had this, um, the world's greatest digital identity program, and I'm going to pronounce it incorrectly, and I'm sorry to our mutual friend, Deep, but <laughs> ADCA, right? Uh, which was okay. biometric ID, uh -huh. bank accounts, 600 million people getting bank accounts, like within two or three years, right? And, and, and thanks to that, during COVID, yeah. during the lockdown, people were able to actually get their money and, you know, like that, that, that is stuff that we don't hear enough about, but we should, right? So, oh. um, long answer, my apologies, but yes, BMPL, crypto, but there's so much other to do around accessibility, okay. vertical embedded finance. Yeah. I think the accessibility is a key component of it. Um, in the, in the end, we've had little silos and big business operating a lot of these areas and that's where the, it opens up. That embedded finance piece where you've got access on a platform and it's all there for you makes a lot of sense. It's rather than I need to go finance or think about this. It becomes another way that people can basically shop and have an option to. It is it is similar to a buy now pay later scheme, but it's more of a B2B play and a different way to think about it. So there I, I do see that as a market that will grow and evolve. The VCs at the moment, what's the market look like? Are they 
holding some gunpowder dry or what are they doing at the moment? What's that sort of market from your mind? Is it, is it still good, good starch getting backed or is it, let's wait and see a little bit. It's a bit half half. So, um, let's talk about stages, right? So, um, we're still seeing, um, a lot of activity in the early stage. Unfortunately, that's because, you know, seven to 10 years away, we could wait and we want to maintain the discipline of investing through cohorts and time cycles. So, you know, that's good. If you're early seed, we're, we're still seeing that. So, so, so that's great. Um, but definitely in terms of when you're starting and I'm going to talk US dollars now. When you're starting uh-huh. to look at, you know, 15 million plus and series A, B, C, I mean, it's all called differently around the world, but effectively, if you, you know, you're around your second or third fundraising with Instos, um, everyone is saying that they are looking and waiting to deploy at the right opportunity. At least half yeah. of them are just playing chicken and waiting for someone to come out first. Okay. <laughs> That's reality, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> So let's say who's going to take, who's the riskier person? Yeah, jump, yeah, uh, jump ahead, and, I guess. and quite yeah. frankly, um, a lot of the VCs just are more worried about their existing portfolio and making sure that um, someone is actually funding the next round. Yeah, okay. There are a couple of things for founders. I mean, it might be different in Australia, but certainly we have a lot of founders that were spoiled by the last, you know, three years in particular. And these founders are like, oh yeah, I better get to my VC. I better get to, you know, giving them the information. It might be different in Australia, but... The advice we're giving when we see founders is, look, if your VC isn't already contacting you about how you're going on runway, um, et cetera, it actually means that you're not their top of mind. So you better get them to be top of mind. They're not actually like most of the VCs I've had have already done the portfolio review around December. Is it waited for the results come January, February and worked out which of their bets that they would back. So if you're not talking to your VCs or they haven't talked to like you're in trouble. The curse. Got it. Yep. So they've really looked at the portfolio, looked at the bit of traction that's popping through and just, yeah, putting all our ducks on the ones that they think they're going to win the rest of and they'll double yeah. down. Yeah. And, I, yeah. I, I, I mean, just, like, let's remind the founders, a VC is uh, taking a bet on you uh-huh. and yes. a whole bunch of others and a VC is, it... is expecting, right, some failures and there's no yes. VC, no VC that is going to be able to provide all the resources to 100% of their portfolio. <laughs> yeah, fair point. Yeah, it doesn't happen yeah. that way. Uh, so, Chris, yeah. why, why do you wake up in the morning? What, oh, I can see you're quite passionate. You're very well-versed in the, the whole Southeast Asia. What's, what do you get out of this space? Um, what, what do you enjoy about it? Because you seem quite passionate. So I just want to dig in on you a little bit. We haven't said much about yourself, so I'd love to hear about yourself and... What gets you up in the morning and why you're a part of this ecosystem? Yeah, so um, the reasons are Linda, Aiden, and Zara. And so as any Australian would know, or any parent around the world would know, <laughs> children are expensive. Yeah. So I've got to find some way to beating them. Um, got it. But more beyond that, I mean, I am passionate yeah. because I see, you know, this incredible cohort of people called the founders, yeah. right? And if you... Oh really think about it, um, on a risk adjusted basis, they're making a backwards financial bet. Most of them give up really good jobs and more stability. Um, depending on jurisdiction and particularly in Asia, um, they're finding a lot of cultural, um, difficulties, you know, um, fear of failure, uh, which I think Australia is a lot better at, right? I mean, um, you know, um, you know, fear of messing up, having to explain to your parents why you've left a stable job. Um, and in oh, Asia, it's worse, right? Particularly if your parents have like mortgaged everything to give. Yeah, to put you through education. Right. And, yeah, yeah, got it. And then third, yes. if you're 
attacking a problem where there's vested interests, right? So I can give you, uh, with our names, examples of uh, logistics companies, for example, in Indonesia, which have had investors help out with the local, local mafia, right? <laughs> well, okay. Brilliant. So, <laughs> you know, names are quite there. <laughs> no, no, so, 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 you know, you're having the founders, which obviously they have multiple reasons, but at the end of the day, we no. need these people. Like, these are the people that are solving problems to make a better tomorrow for all of us, right? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I just feel incredibly privileged to work with them. Um, it hurts me to say, but yes, Deepak is one of them. <laughs> but yeah. But yeah, in terms of why we put the Devity podcast together, just to give you a bit of context, um, in 2019, this is pre-COVID, we had five founders come to us in the space of a week and effectively said that oh, we've blown one point something million dollars on product, their own money. One one lady was about half a million dollars of capital. Still has fourth build. Fourth build still had no product, no nothing to show for it. Um, no MVP, no anything. And, and we sort of said, okay, how do we just share stories? What's a better way to do this? There's no right or wrong way. It's difficult. The world of being a founder is challenging. You're going to run through many different problems. Uh, delivering your technology could be one of those. Or building a sound model or even getting customers to actually get some traction is really another area that you need to be focusing on. Um, but yeah, we started the Dev Ready podcast because we do appreciate that founders can take big risks. Some people have lost homes that have been on our podcast and sad stories, but there's massive lessons to learn from that and how you might approach it next time. But in the end, it's a risk reward game that everyone's playing. And um, yeah, we do enjoy the passion that people bring to the table and the problems they're trying to solve. I find that I'll ask this question to you. What do you find? Who are the ones that succeed in your mind? What are the criteria that you see that that garner success? Um, there's no right or wrong answer to that, but just what do you see that really so puts a founder in good stead to go on a journey like this? I haven't got any silver bullets here. Um, you know, one thing that... I, I wouldn't expect any, but yeah, is there any... <laughs> one of the things I hate to admit, yeah, but yeah, um, luck, yeah. um, you know, yeah. and, and I, I mean... I, 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 I hate to talk about stuff that, you know, you can't yes. control, uh, but, um, the founders uh-huh. that are successful, um, apart from having, you know, all the classical elements of hardworking, willing to listen, build the right team, all that kind of stuff. Um, uh-huh. I see have either lucky or ability to find themselves in the right place, um, at the right time and have the right exposure. Um, um. And to identify shifts, right? Like, I mean, how many times have we seen a successful startup that um, was successful because there was a shift or, um, you know, the converse, not successful because they didn't see it coming, right? Um, So probably to answer your question, I would say um, be conscious of the shifts, try to be in the right place at the right time. And then second, Uh by definition, if you're a startup, you're unprofitable. You've got no choice. You need to have a very investor-friendly capital strategy. (laughs) There is no choice. Like, I mean, um, I hear some things from some professors, you know, you've got a good business, it will be funded. No, man, I live in the real world, man. (laughs) No, man, you need to be building something that people would would, would fund. You need to survive, right? Um, Because by definition, you are unprofitable. So so you must have a capital strategy. You must have a proactive investment strategy. You've got to know who's looking after your next round, et cetera, man, full stop. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's thinking forward on the whole capital component because, yeah, 
like you said, there's a runway and it dwindles pretty quickly. The likelihood you've got 12 months, 18 months max um, in a perfect world. That's where it really sits. And it takes a long time to close off those rounds. Ain't getting longer. So you've got to be planning early. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, your runway is just going to be burned out before you even get anywhere yeah, close. and getting longer. And, and, and you know, put, put your team in place to run the business, right? Because um, you are going to be the guy or girl that has to talk to the investors, that courts them, that sees them six, 10, 15 times to get that check. Yeah. It's a, yeah it is an interesting do right. you can the, close the sale. <laughs> it's a sale to the VC. Um, and that's it being around, like, from a founder's perspective, it's a, it probably an interesting way to look at it. So a founder comes in generally because they want to solve big problems. Maybe they've got a concept, they've got some IP, potentially the domain expert, and they see an opportunity. Um, but what I've noticed is if you're going to play the game of big C, you, big VC, and you need big capital to drive a scalable business, you end up becoming that person that fronts the VC conversations. You get sucked into a lot of that. How do you take the shift there and how do you encourage founders to think about that? Or could they bring people onto the team to support that or a co-founder? What would you say around that area? Or are you, yeah. are they, are the VC is more looking at investing in the co-founder, in the founder than the business in the early stages? Yeah, I'll answer that. So, um, um, look, if you're early, you've got no choice. It's got to be you. They're backing you, right? They're not backing yes. your business. By the time, yeah, and I'll be as specific as I can be to be more useful to your audience, right? Yep. I would say by the time you're doing, say, five to 10 million a year, okay. um, but if, you know, if you're doing five and you've got a really sexy business with like high valuation, uh -huh. you should already be having a chief operating officer, some number two that runs your business. The VCs okay. will be expecting to see you. Uh, but by yeah. that stage, you can then look at a CFO or someone else to help front up with the investor conversations. Right. But it, it, it's still you, um, right. by the time that you will have five to 10 and you're looking for the next check, you better make sure that at least one or two of the VCs on your cap table love you and are championing you and actually are saying, right, uh, I'm going to be clear about my advice again. If you're a founder and you do not know yet and you do not have your VC reaching out to you as one of their favorite portfolios, get there quickly because yes. you're going to be an orphan yeah. child full stop, right? Okay. Um, by the time your Series C, let's say maybe you've got, you know, 10 to 15 in revenue, um, you're looking at profitability, uh, being, you know, 18 months away, etc. Yeah. I mean, you should just not nickel and dime. You should have a first class CFO. You should have a investor relations function of some sort. You should be controlling the narrative in the markets. You should be looking at, you know, if you sign up a big commercial deal, having PR, you should be on panels, you should be available to be seen. Um, so that, that's some advice around proactively managing your capital strategy. Uh, I think it's good advice because a lot of people go in, like I said, founders coming from the, the idea, the concept, the domain knowledge, the domain expertise, and they sit in product or they sit in business and operation and they maybe don't give a holistic view of what they're really in for, especially if you want to go at big scale. There's different levels of business. If you're looking at proper startups, creating big value, uh, looking at the top end, that's, yeah. One thing I've noticed in some founders that really don't get a grip on that and it passes them by a little bit. Um, so something that people can think about and take away from today. Well, sadly, around every six weeks, I'm, yeah. I'm repeating this example, right? And then, you know, yeah. I think, um, you know, all of us are of the vintage to understand it, but there used to be this thing called VHS called Betatron, right? And yep. it's not the best technology that wins yeah. and like constantly Once. having to tell founders, look, if you want to build the best technology 
and have a business around that, that's okay. But understand the game that you're in. The game that you're in is the best. It's not the best technology, but it's the best technology that finds the product market fit that's going to win. And that may not be as shiny of a toy that you want to build. And that's a difficult discussion with the founder. I get it. But if you're in the VC game, it's all around market traction and that's it. Mm -hmm. And and, and there are some sacrifices along the way and there may be different people to drive your company, maybe a more commercially orientated one. So, yeah. Yeah. Chris. Thanks for joining us on the DevReady podcast. There's a lot of context and information that people think about, especially from Oz in the world of Southeast Asia and what the potentials might be. And I think if anyone's looking to go to the US, maybe consider uh, Singapore, at least as a bit of an education piece and going and have a look because, yeah, there is quite a bit of opportunity and clearly the government's backing technology in that space. Um, so thank you for joining us on DevReady Podcast. Anyone wants to learn about you and what you offer, um, where can they find you, Chris? Sure. So um, the website, capconnect.asia, also uh, I'm on LinkedIn and uh, be um, an absolute pleasure um, in seeing how I can serve uh, your audience. Um, thank you so much for having me here. I appreciate it, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Chris. It's been great.